the myth and the legend of our beloved Frank Switzer. Uh, so it went so well and received such uh, high audience feedback, we decided to do another one. But we're going to do it on a more sober and serious topic. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in the world today. Uh, the pandemic, social unrest, divisive politics, death and disease and the like. We're going to talk about that, how we should view it, and how we as Christians should rightly respond to it. So before I start, uh, I am Steve Wheeler. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, this is Frank Switzer, uh, star of stage, screen, what is it? Stage, screen. screen, and television. In any event, let me uh, kick us off with a prayer. So if you bow your heads. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to meet today and for your presence here with us. May you bless this time as one of fellowship, as one of instruction, as, as one of unity, wisdom, and practical application all that better equip us to honor you and to serve your people. In your son's name we pray, amen. Amen. So Frank, uh, let's start off again on a slightly personal note by saying, give us just an overview of how you and, and your family have been managing through the pandemic, both in terms of things you may have learned or changes to the rhythm of your life and and were those learnings and those changes ones that are just going to be temporary, or do you see them as permanent? Uh, well, our, our family has been surviving and in many cases thriving uh, in the midst of this, but it hasn't been without some casualties and consequences. Um, it, it's hard to be sort of restricted to your, you know, to very narrow traffic patterns during the day and staying home and stuff like that. And uh, um, we've discovered that Netflix and Amazon Prime aren't as exciting as they normally are when you get to watch it in the middle of doing a bunch of other stuff. Now we're kind of, we're taking more walks, even in the heat, we're taking more walks. Jackie's working a lot. Uh, her job has actually in, increased exponentially in complexity and, and uh, challenges and so Jackie's working a lot more. Uh, I'm working about the same, but it's just different work and it's it, it is stressful work. But uh, we're doing okay. Shelby is um, three months away from graduating from PA school and taking her boards. We're very excited about that. She's been able to make it through. Their whole school has been able to make it through. Although there's somewhat in the path of Laura right now. She lives down in Houston. And Joey and Darby are both employed in Lincoln, Illinois, and making it through and, and doing well. So on the whole, I'd say we've, we've been blessed. We've been doing okay, but I know that's not true across the board. So any specific takeaway in terms of lessons learned about how to live life under this sort of stress that will stick with you, or are you waiting to return to what passed for normalcy uh, before the pandemic hit us? I'm not necessarily waiting to return to normalcy I'm asking a lot of questions about the wisdom of some things that are being done now, but I'm not waiting till the return to normalcy uh, because I'm not sure what that will look like or if it'll actually happen or if we'll just settle into something that sort of feels normal for now. Um, but uh, I, what I've learned is, first of all, Jackie and I are as solid as we've ever been, maybe even more solid, which is great. I have not found that to necessarily be the case, and so my heart grieves that. I'm, we're dealing with a lot more uh, marital unrest. Um, we're dealing with a tremendous amount of anxiety, depression, and even uh, 
thoughts of suicide, uh, not only with adults, but also with um, middle schoolers and high schoolers. It's been very, very challenging, very so, difficult. So expand on that a bit. So extrapolate the question from you to the congregation as a whole. You probably mm -hmm. have a better finger on the pulse of uh, more of the folks in the congregation than, than anyone else. Can you make any generalizations about how you see people coping and responding? Uh, do they appear to see, do you see folks that are flourishing now during yeah. this time or are most people uh, anxious and, and fearful? Yeah. Any generalizations you can make about the congregation? A lot of people are anxious and fearful and the anxiety and fear is being driven by a lot of outside forces that uh, have an agenda to drive anxiety and fear, which I think is unfortunate and a lot of people are susceptible to that. That's why I think now more than ever the gospel applies. Uh, we have great opportunities right now. Jesus said 500 times in the gospels, fear not. As long as you're with Jesus, it doesn't mean that things aren't hard, but yeah, it's been very difficult. I, and I can answer some questions by citing research and feel uh, really good about empirical evidence to what is true. What I'm about to say is more anecdotal, just my own observation and experience, but what I've observed and experienced is that um, people have on more than ever the facade that things are fine, everything's fine, don't worry, uh, but in reality, they've never been in more turmoil, they've never had more anxiety, there's never been more stress, they've never, uh, as much as they are today, saying the life I'm living right now is not sustainable, the context that we're living in right now is not sustainable. Something's going to give. There's problems, not only individually and local with, locally within my own family or my own community, but also uh, more regionally and globally. It's, it's a very difficult time. Um, when I get people alone and they're willing to take off the mask, uh, I hear people saying, I have had it with what's going on right now. I'm done with it. I, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't feel like waking up the next morning. It's just one troubling thing after another. I mean, that's what I've been experiencing. Um, theologically, based on that observation, I, I will say, and I'm pretty confident in this, that right now, as believers, if you say you're a believer in Christ and in the gospel, we are being sifted and we are being pruned. We're being sifted by Satan, and we're being pruned by God. And the church is going to come out of this. So many people are saying, oh, the church is going to be devastated by this. Nobody's ever going to come back to church. It's going to change the way we do church forever. Internet church is not real church. Live stream church is not real church. And just, just, just problem after problem after problem after problem. But historically, God has always pruned his people in his church. It's kind of a way of, of making sure that who claims Christ and who claims the church is actually a gospel-centered person and somebody who really believes. Uh, and that's whether they attend live stream, because there are reasons why you shouldn't come to church right now. And there are reasons why you should be attending the live stream, uh, or you're coming in person. Um, but I also believe that Satan is using this to sift through people who are kind of playing at faith and playing at church as well. And, and he's going to win a lot of that, too. And that's just kind of the way it is. And 
You know, there was that very dark time in Elijah's ministry when the believers in Israel, the true believers in Israel, were down to 7,000. And Elijah was lamenting, and woe is me, and I'm the only one. And, and God said, no, you're not. There's 7,000, which isn't very many, but it's more than Elijah. And so, and that's what God used to build. That's the remnant in that particular historical context that God used to build. So that's what we're going through right now. Uh, I believe that God is sovereign. God causes or allows everything to happen. And so um, this is something that we're going to have to go through. And it's, in many respects, it's nothing new. You realize that when World War I or World War II broke out, people were saying, oh, this is the end of everything. And we seem to come back from those things. So let me, let me pick up on that point. Yeah. Uh, among the folks I see that, that are fearful and anxious, they'll use words like unprecedented. They'll say what yeah. we're going through is, has never happened before. Unprecedented, and, and, yeah. and you know, you and I have both heard the term <laughs> chronological snobbery, yeah. which, which uh, relates to folks in the current day thinking that anything that they're going through somehow is more significant or more impactful than any other time in history. Yeah. So if you look back at history, in fact, if you look at biblical history in terms of events that, that are historically related there, and then you think about, as you pick, point out, World War I or the flu epidemic in 1918, are we really going through times that are so unprecedented? Yes, nobody has ever suffered as much as we are right now. Okay. It's awful, it's terrible. No, um, if I see one more ad, that starts with, in these uncertain and unprecedented times, I am literally going to throw up. Okay? And, and here's how they, they, in these uncertain and unprecedented times, when we all need to come together and watch each other's back, you need to buy a Toyota. I'm just sick of it, to be honest with you. No, these times are not... Yes, you could argue there are things that are new and different. We've never had digital communication the way we do now. We've never had social media the way we do now. But uh, on the other hand, um, read your scripture. There's always going to be wars and talk of wars and threats. And there's always going to be bad weather. And there's always going to be viruses and pandemics and you know, the, the famines. There's always going to be this. The, the poor are always going to be with you. Oh, that's a metaphor. No, the poor are always going to be with you. We live in a fallen world. There are going to be problems. And the, the one data point, you can argue with me on some of the details on this, and go ahead. You know, um, Text Tyler James, and he'll get, get you in touch with me. But anyway, um, I, I like to look back at 1968 and sort of compare us to 1968. Uh, a lot of people don't know what I'm about to tell you, and if you don't think I've got my numbers right, look it up for yourself. In 1968, we had a pandemic. It was called the Hong Kong flu. 250,000 people in America, in the United States, died from the Hong Kong flu, uh, that pandemic in 1968. And that was at a time when the uh, population of America was about 200, 210 million, something like that. We're 350 million now. We're, we're getting towards a quarter of a million deaths, but um, we're still not there on coronavirus. So percentage-wise, the Hong Kong flu, and as far as I could tell, was way more deadly than, than the coronavirus. Um, uh, something like three million people worldwide died from the Hong Kong flu. 
1968, there, were, there was civil unrest and riots in dozens and dozens of cities across the United States. Um, they were, they're, they're, you know, the, the Black Power and the Black Panther movement was going on. The Summer of Love had just um, finished up in 1967, which was redefining sexuality in America. Um, music was going through a tremendous revolution with, you know, the Beatles and the Birds and, and Grace Slick and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and all of that. You had um, uh, Woodstock. So you had all of that going on as well. You had Vietnam going on, um, which was very controversial. It was an election year and it was, how, all right, so there's like two people, three people in here who remember the election in 1968, how contentious it was. Maybe not quite as contentious as this year, but it was extraordinarily contentious. And it was Richard Nixon versus Hubert Humphrey. And, and I'm telling you, both of them were like the, you know, the antichrist as far as everybody was concerned. Kind of sounds a little bit similar to today. Um, the similarities are striking. And people were dying in these riots. <clears throat> there was looting that was out, absolutely out of control. One difference is that the media in 1968 um, uh, did not coddle the rioters the way they are. I, I would say the way most of the media is coddling the rioters this year. Uh, that might be one difference, but generally it was, it was going on virtually unchecked. So look at 1968 and look at what's happening today. It's fairly similar. It's just that there's more people involved. There's digital communication. Um, and I don't, you know, I, it probably won't end until at least after November 4th, and then it could even get worse after November 4th. So, so let me interject a, a question of application then uh, to, to those folks who, who somehow don't feel any better after you told them how bad things used to be, too. Oh, uh, yeah, nobody's going to feel better after yeah. tonight. I've got all kinds of negative yeah, so, stuff. So, so, so for those folks who, who, who still have their fears and anxieties, give me like a, a three or four point list of, of how should. Uh, somebody who is fearful respond to the pandemic. Can you give me a specific? I mean, sure. so, wear your so, mask. Don't go anywhere where there's lots of people. Okay, I mean, so you know. so let me read you the sage advice I have that okay. I, that I stole from somebody else and see if you okay. would, you would agree you with that. Stole it from Schrader, I'm sure. Uh, well, from whoever he stole it from. Okay, all right. Yeah. So so the four points out of out of this article said one, do not fear. The obvious one, which I think is so frequently overlooked, you know, the Bible has 300 or so mentions of commanding us not to fear. Yeah. So remember what God says about these difficult times, the times that we've just talked about that have been right. here for literally thousands of years. Secondly, take the reasonable steps to protect yourself, yeah. and, uh, to comply with administrative authorities yeah. as you just talked. The third is, notwithstanding your fears, look for opportunities for ministry yes. amongst all this. And let me just stop you there. There's tremendous opportunity for ministry right now. Yeah. So. And, and the fourth would be, take a good self-assessment of yourself. What a perfect time to, mm -hmm. to examine yourself and see where you are spiritually, uh, where you are with respect to your relationships and your life. And take stock of that and see what you, you know, the old Winston Churchill quote that you don't like me to use, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah, so. yeah I know. That, that quote has been hijacked in so many negative ways. That's why I don't like yeah. the quote anymore. But there is truth to that. Um, this is a time of crisis, and so the, the Christian can use it as an opportunity to, here you go, build relationships in new ways and serve people that way. Um, 
I think some of you, those of you who know me know that I generally get irritated with the whole notion of the person who's going to change the world. Uh, I can just go down the list, list after list after, li you know, person after person after person who had that as their motto, who is now in jail because they were so determined to change the world that they ended up doing all kinds of illegal things. Elizabeth Holmes, who's not in jail yet, but probably will be. She's a primary example of that. Another one would be Josh, um, uh, what's his last name? Anyway, the guy that um, operated the Silk Road uh, website on the dark web until he was caught. He was gonna change the world. He's in prison now for the rest of his life. Um, uh, you need to really focus on just developing a few relationships under the context that we're in now and ministering that way. And it will make a difference. It will make a difference in people's lives. If you're just still focused on trying to change the world, you're not gonna change the world and you're gonna waste all this time and energy, I think. Tom Schrader used to say it this way, put a lid on your dreams so that you can actually be effective somewhere instead of telling everybody how effective you're gonna be in this grand way and you're not doing anything because nothing is working. So you have opportunities right now to develop relationships. That's, uh, and I know, well, that's what you're doing, Frank, so obviously you're for that. Yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been working harder at um, reaching out to people and saying, hey, let's get together for lunch, let's get together for coffee, let's have a FaceTime call. I never, I never used FaceTime before coronavirus. Never did, now I'm using it all the time. I'm Zoomed out, but yeah, I'm using Zoom, I'm going to Zoom meetings and that's been helpful. And so we have opportunities to minister and to serve in new ways and we should, we should pivot and start doing those things. Okay. So, so let me switch gears slightly into a, a heavy theological question, multi-part. So pick the part of it you oh, like geez. best. Multi-part. So one of the questions you hear in various forms, uh, either in the press or in conversations, is where is God in the midst of this pandemic? Is this the beginning of the end times? Is the pandemic yeah. caused by God to punish the world? Is God still sovereignly in control, or is he yeah. wringing his hands in despair? Yeah. Pick one of those. Yeah, so... Um, or all of them. Multi-layered questions from Steve Wheeler. That's, that should instill fright in anybody. Thank goodness I have Jesus with me. Anyway, so, where is God? Uh, did God turn around to watch a Netflix show or something and suddenly everything lost control? No. God is exactly where he was when he was creating. God is exactly where he was on 9-11. God is exactly where he was when JFK was assassinated. He's exactly where he was when any negative bad thing happened. He's on his throne, he's sovereign, and he either causes or allows everything to happen. If he can't do that, if he does not do that, he's not God. Tom used to say all the time, there is no maverick molecule in the universe out of God's control. He, he has a purpose and a reason for everything, and just because we don't know what that purpose and reason is doesn't make it illegitimate. It's God's reason and purpose. And usually, in some way that we struggle to understand, it's for our good and his glory, we just don't get it yet. Paul says that we see things darkly right now. Uh, we see things through, like, uh, opaque. But someday we're going to see clearly. And, and I think that once Jesus comes again, once we're with him, uh, in heaven, we're, we're going to, a lot of us are going to go, oh, oh, I get it now. 
but it's hard right now because we don't get it right now. So he's not wringing his hands. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, we've been through much worse. So did he cause the pandemic or did he just allow it? Yeah, I don't know. He either caused it or allowed it. But I can tell you it's a result of the corruption of sin. I know why it happened in terms of, you know, the fact that it's the, everything, it, th this hurricane that's coming through Louisiana and Texas, it, it, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That is part of the fallen created order. That hurricane, this virus, um, so, so lust is a part of that. So, so are we kicking off the end times now? Is this an event I, that? I don't think so. Um, we're in the end times. The end times are described really as uh, from Jesus' ascent until he comes again. So we are in the end times, but we've been in the end times a couple thousand years. But is this the end end times, like the real end times? I, I don't think so. so every, every generation thinks that they're in the middle of the actual end times. Every generation has thought that. In fact, people who say these are signs of the end times, doesn't that run counter to, to Jesus' Jesus' pronunciations that it's like a thief at night. We won't know the time yeah. or the place. Yeah, every time somebody predicts, you know, the day and the hour, I, I know for a fact that's not when it's going to happen because no one knows the day or the hour, and, and it's going to come like a thief in the night. So yeah. John Piper wrote a book called The Coronavirus and Christ, and he, he gave a whole book on what to make of it. Uh, along the lines of the question I just asked you, and I want to read you the... When, when did he write that, like 10 years this ago? This year. Oh, yeah. this year, okay. This year. Yeah, he predicted it. But, uh, no, he got it out very quickly. Okay. Uh, so this is his sort of summary take on it. If it's a Piper quote, it's long, so I'm going to put my mic down. Yeah. What God is doing in the coronavirus is showing us, graphically, painfully, that nothing in this world gives the security and satisfaction that we find in the infinite greatness and worth of Jesus. This global pandemic takes away our freedom of movement, our business activity, and our face-to-face -face relations. It takes away our security and our comfort. And in the end, it may take away our lives. The reason God exposes us to such losses is to rouse us to rely on Christ. Or to put another way, the reason he makes calamity the occasion for offering Christ to the world is that the supreme, all-satisfying greatness of Christ shines more brightly when Christ sustains joy and suffering. Yeah, you never know how much you need Christ until Christ is all you have. Yeah. So um, I was right. It's a long quote. Um, but, but do you want to take it, you know, phrase at a time? or? <laughs> no, no. But, uh, okay. you know, the, the thought somehow that this, uh, assuming you don't know whether he caused or allowed it, but his point about the, the effect of it, the purpose yeah. of it, either way, is to indicate our need for Christ. Right. It's a, a foretaste of what will happen when sin meets its right. due, and it should be a call to action and, for and us to come to Christ. And it's a pruning exercise. Yeah. It is a pruning exercise. Uh, I'd like to talk about two things in response to that quote. As, as you were reading it, two things popped into my mind. One is Christian history, uh, church history, and the other is idols, and I actually I, I thought we might get around to talking about idols, so I jotted down some notes, so I might grab my notes for that. But let me first respond with Christian history. Um, one thing that is different in these times, not across the board, but um, uh, I think we can make the argument that this is different than 
the way it's been in Christian history. In, in, in ancient Christian history, and even in the, in the medieval times of Christian history, uh, the church was known, renowned, for uh, people going out in the midst of disease. Now remember, this is before medicine. So if you got exposed to something very bad, the plague or whatever, you would probably die. There was no chance. Hospitals, medicine, therapy, none of that stuff was available. And of course, whatever they thought might happen, like, you know, drain blood out, for a while they would say, drain blood out of the person, that'll help them get better. That usually doesn't work that well. But, um, but in those times, the church was known for people going out and ministering to people who were dying and who were very contagious. And they would minister without masks, they would minister um, faithfully and without any fear whatsoever, and many died doing that. Um, the, the difference I see today is that many Christians are just living in tremendous fear. Now, let me qualify that and say, I'm not telling you to go out and not wear a mask and expose yourself to COVID. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that this idea that you are paralyzed into doing absolutely nothing right now, and in some cases I would even argue using the virus as an excuse to do nothing, that is not the, the joy of the gospel, the faith of the gospel, that's not what the gospel is about. We have to pivot and figure out how to be the light of the world. And the light of the world is not gonna be kept under um, a drape, quarantined away somewhere. Now I understand if you're in the, if you're in the vulnerable age group, I get all of that. I get all the arguments, but, uh, but to just live in nothing but fear and expect that the only way our lives are ever going to change again is if all risk is eliminated, uh, that's a fantasy and that's never going to happen. We're never going to ever live in a time when all risk is eliminated. You get in your car and drive down the street, you are taking a risk. Living life is a risky proposition. And so trying to eliminate risk is, 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 is a problem. It's also, this idea of eliminating all risk is, is something that's three or 400 years old anyway. It's a part of the uh, scientific revolution and the Renaissance and, and all, all of that um, from the 16th century, 17th and 18th centuries, where uh, when scientific process was discovered and, and started to come online, the promises being made by scientists of, you know, we're gonna be able to answer every question, eliminate all suffering and and um, take care of every need that every person has ever had. How has that worked out for us? Well, it hasn't worked out for us. And so we're still striving for that and it's not something that'll ever happen. So um, I, I think that we, we need to be a little bit more willing to say it's risky to live and God is sovereign, so let's live our lives anyway. Let's be prudent, but let's live our lives, okay? Let's not just shut everything down and that's the end of it. Uh, we didn't shut anything down during the Hong Kong flu. Here's what they did during the Hong Kong flu in 1968. My mother had the Hong Kong flu, and, and uh, she, I'd never heard her say this before. She said, I literally thought I was going to die. She was very sick. What they did during the Hong Kong flu was they quarantined those who were sick, but they didn't, they didn't quarantine those who were well, and they didn't shut anything else down. 
That's not, I'm not advocating for a policy. I'm just saying that's what they did in 1968, and they got through that. Um, and people were still able to live and go about their business. So that's one thing. I, I think that Christian history, uh, especially if you go back several hundred years, the church and the manifestation of people ministering to others looked a little bit different than it does today. And I think I can safely make that argument. The second thing, though, is that I think this whole thing has exposed our idols in a, in a new and fresh way. Uh, we have a tremendous problem with idols um, in our world today. And, and if you could just, oh boy, this is going to be hard to find, especially with this microphone. Sorry about that. Now's the right time to run to the refrigerator and get refreshments. So, so here you go. I think that we're getting some new understanding of idols. I've, I, I've been making notes and journaling about this, so this is some of my thoughts on idols. Uh, we need to remember that idols are not just an interruption of our relationship with God, uh, but it's also an interruption of our relationship with others. But it's also not just about worshiping and serving something other than God. In fact, if you read Paul and you read the Ten Commandments, you understand that at their core, idols are demonic. They're demonic. This is spiritual warfare. To have an idol is a spiritual warfare at its deepest and its darkest. And so I would argue right now that politics is the new and the most destructive and pervasive idol in, our Ameri in America, left or right, doesn't matter. Left or right, Politics is our new idol, it's the most pervasive idol, and it's the most destructive idol. Uh, Christians and nuns, not Catholic nuns, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if you ever go to the hospital and they say, what's your religion, and you can check off none, okay. Christians and nuns, probably the two biggest categories of religious preference that you'll find in America are turning in droves from Christianity and from none to politics and political affiliation as their idol. Now, just think about it. They are worshiping it. They are worshiping Donald Trump. They are worshiping uh, Joe Biden. They are worshiping the Republican Party. They are worshiping the Democratic Party. They are worshiping progressive ideology. They are worshiping conservative ideology. They are worshiping it. They are serving it. They are going out and, and giving it their time, their energy, and their effort. They are tithing to it. They are giving their money to it, left and right. They're trying to figure out how they can give more money to whatever they think is politically correct. And here's the worst part. They are incarnating it. It's becoming incarnational. They are taking on the flesh and the identity of their political position, their political party, their political whatever. And, and if you have now decided to put your trust instead of in Jesus and in the gospel, and you can dress that up with all the Christian and gospel terms that you want, but if in reality and in functionality you are putting your trust in the God of politics, if you're putting your trust in government, any government, Biden-led government, Trump-led government, if you're putting your trust in that to bring about the kingdom of God, two things are true. 
Number one, you're an idol worshiper. And number two, you are naive. You are naive. Only Jesus can bring about the kingdom of God. Well, I am trying to bring about the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm going out and protesting and, and I'm posting on social media and all of that. Okay, fine. And again, I would ask, how's that working? Have you developed relationships by posting things on social media? I haven't seen that happening. Um, maybe I'm an outlier. Maybe everybody else is drumming up tremendous friendships with people. Here you go. With people who have different opinions than you. Are you drumming up serious friendships on social media with people who have different opinions than you? I would guess that when I throw that part in, that who have different opinions than you, the answer is no. Yeah, you've got lots of friends who think exactly the way you are thinking, but not that way. This has become a tremendous idol. Um, Can I stop you right there before you go to another one? Are you going to do another? I, I'm going to finish this point about, there's another okay. side to this coin, though. You can see I'm very amped up about this. I'm very passionate about this, right? That was going to be my question. So here's the other side, here, so here's the other side of that coin, though. There are also people who are going, well you, well, you sound like, well, then just preach the gospel. Just, let's just preach the gospel. That's it. That, that's it. Just preach the gospel. Okay. Maybe. First of all, we have to define what the gospel is. We need definition for just preaching the gospel because, in my opinion, this Americanized, American evangelical church gospel has become ridiculously and unbiblically reductionistic. When, when I hear somebody say, well, just preach the gospel, here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing somebody who says um, the gospel is highly individualistic, in other words, it's just for a person. It doesn't happen in community. That doesn't seem very biblical. It's otherworldly. We only want to talk about the gospel in terms of getting to heaven, which I admit that's one of the goals. That's a big goal, I would say. It's the ultimate goal. Um, but it's not just otherworldly. And then the third thing is that it's only in the future. So read Jesus. Read the prophets. Read the New Testament letters. There is a huge relational and community component to God's people and the gospel. It's not just about the individual. Yes, individuals are saved by Jesus. Yes. But it's not just about the individual. That happens in community and relationship. God created us to be in relationship. Our pri the primary way that we are image bearers of God is that we are in relationship with God and with others and with his creation. That is the primary way that we bear the image of God is that we are relational beings. So you can't divorce the gospel from community. You just can't do it. Also, read the New Testament letters. Read Jesus in the gospels. Read the prophets. This gospel is not otherworldly. It has application to today. It is, it is about serving and living under the power of the Holy Spirit now and today and being a light in this world. And it is not just about the future. It is about now. And so we need to understand that. So when we say, let's just preach the gospel, let's, let's preach a holistic gospel that's going to talk about how the church needs to be the church now in this context. The church needs to, and by the way, we need to pivot every time there's something new, which is seemingly 
every week, but we need to pivot and move. That's why my favorite phrase right now is this is what we're doing for now <laughs> in the church. The, we're, we're, we have a 9 and a 10, 1030 service on Sunday for now. My guess is that by the end of September, that could be different. We could have three services. We could be back to one. We could have children's ministry. We could have no children's ministry. It, 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 I don't know. We're, we'll wait and see what happens. So there you go. There's the other side of that coin. We'll just preach the gospel. Well, let's define what the gospel is. I'm not comfortable with the Americanized uh, definition of the gospel. Can I ask my clarifying question? Now you can ask your clarifying question. See, the more I talk, the fewer questions he can ask and the better I feel. So, so you're running out the clock? I'm running out the clock. This is my four corners <laughs> offense right now. So uh, to, to give a little uh, hype for a session we're going to do next month where we're going to talk about politics. Yeah. Uh, I don't want anybody to, to misconstrue your earlier comment. You're not in any way suggesting people shouldn't be involved in political campaigns and supporting no. candidates and advocating policies that are consistent with no. the Christian worldview. You're just talking about taking it to an excess where it dominates and defines you. Yeah. Uh, because we have lots of folks that feel strongly about, sure. about their civic duty to participate, and we don't want to discourage that rightly done. No, we, no, we do not. But, I, but here's the thing. I want it to be policy-driven, not party-driven or candidate-driven. It needs to be policy-driven. Now, there was a, a title, I think, to a Brett McCracken article that said, we need profits, not partisans. Yes. And which I thought was a good way of summar summarizing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to figure it out and vote and be involved, but every conversation I'm going to have is going to be more about policy. So, so let me stay on that general subject. You're a voracious reader, and you're a serious pulse-taker of current trends. What other things yeah. are you seeing out there that you would, in, in the social realm or political realm, that you would find either encouraging or discouraging beyond sort of the idle issue? Are you seeing some other trends and developments which you, you also are disturbed by or that, to the contrary, you say, I'm somewhat encouraged by what I'm seeing? Uh, I would, Van, that's a hard, uh, where to begin with that? Um, I guess I'll begin with, again, what's some of the things that have been on my mind most lately. And again, uh, is, I'm going to kind of go on for a while now. Are you okay with I've, that? I've got water. Okay, good. good. All right. Um, I think one of the areas that people are missing, and again, you're going to say, well, you have a background in human communication theory, so this is a bailiwick of yours. Yeah, it is. But I think you're missing. I think a lot of people are missing this. Um, we live in, and, and I can take you through the history of why this is true, uh, starting with um, the, existential, the existential philosophers and how that went from, you know, pretty elite thought into academia and then into the mainstream, especially as it started to filter into the mainstream in the 70s. Um, so starting with existential philosophy and then with um, Stanley Fish and reader response theory in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and how that came online. And a lot of people wouldn't even realize that they read text now using 
the framework of reader response, Stanley Fish's reader response theory, they wouldn't even know who Stanley Fish is, but they know that that's how they read a text. In other words, the author has no authority in what the text means. The text only means what I interpret it to mean. And so you, I could take you through all of that history to where we are today, where we live in what we now call a receiver-oriented communication culture. We are a receiver-oriented communication culture. That means that um, you as a uh, message sender, whether you're speaking or writing or texting or posting, whatever it is, you as a message sender, the minute you send the message, you have lost control of the interpretation or meaning of that message, no matter what your intent is. Um, and, and you're going to say, that's not fair. I didn't intend to, to, that's not what I intended. It doesn't matter whether it's fair or not. That's the culture you live in. I am fascinated, just even within the context of preaching on Sunday morning, how often people will email me, text me, or come up to me after a, a sermon and say, when you said this, blah, 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 I, this, this, and this, and, and I literally am sitting there going, I... I never said that. I never, ever, ever said that. And I'll go and I'll check my notes. I'll listen to the recording. I never said that. But somebody heard it. Somebody received it. So you have to be really careful how you communicate. But people don't understand it. Receiver-oriented communication culture. So they're not careful with how they communicate. And, and it's, it's a source of, of some of the greatest division that we have right now. That leads to not the ability, the inability to, to have conversations with each other in a civil way where we're trying to gain understanding. Um, we're not interested in, what did you mean by that? We don't ask clarifying questions anymore. And so that becomes a problem. And that just drives us more and more, especially with digital communication and social media, it just drives us more and more into groupthink, into echo chambers where we're just hanging around people who parrot everything that we say and, and we kind of feel good about ourselves. And we're not aware that there are any other opinions or um, potential arguments against our position out there. And, and so that's a problem. That is also, um, uh, that's also complicated again by digital communication and social media in that um, uh, first of all, most communication anymore is not what's called synchronic communication. Synchronic com communication, syn, S-Y-N, meaning same or together, chronic meaning time, chronos, meaning time, same time communication. That's in-person, live, back and forth communication where you can uh, have a dialogue and you can ask clarifying questions. Um, that is just going by the wayside. Instead, we have, um, uh, asynchronic communication. The A negates the sin, so not together communication, or, or not together time communication. So now you're texting somebody, and you understand that by the time the person receives the text and answers you, even if they receive it and answer it right away, the context of the text could have changed just in that five or ten seconds. But most digital communication is not answered or even read right away, so the context changes asynchronic, not at the same time, and so we have that problem as well. And so we're, we're dealing with a, 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 a time problem in, in the efficiency of communication. 
which is only exacerbating the problem. Then it also leads to the disinhibition effect. So all the research shows that any communication that's mediated by a third party and your screen is a third party. So those of you who are older, okay, those of you who are older will remember that when you were in grade school or high school, it was easier to try to get somebody romantically involved with you if you went through somebody else, right? Hey, could you tell so-and-so that I really like her? That's disinhibition. You have an inhibition. You're, you're inhibited from walking up to the person yourself and saying, I really like you, I'd like to go out with you. But you're, the, the disinhibition happens when you can ask through a friend because then you don't have to suffer that awkwardness and the rejection and all that. Okay, well, this is a disinhibiting tool, this screen. So research shows that we say things to people through a screen, we post things on internet sites and on social media that we would never, ever, ever do in person, but we're willing to do it through a screen because it provides a sense of anonymity. Um, Tony Renke, a, a researcher in this area, talks about how this is promoting something called solipsism. Solipsism is this idea that you're, you are the only thing, you are the only thing that is real and that exists. Nothing else is real and nothing else exists. And these screens have only promoted solipsism. He says that when you're, when, you're, when you're posting on social media, it's like you're having a conversation with yourself. You don't realize, though, the consequences of what happens when you post on social media until people start coming back at you. And then you're shocked that anybody would take it in any way other than you meant it to, to happen. That's the world we're living in today. We don't know how to communicate with each other, and it's getting worse. And what's even worse, and I wish parents would listen to me on this. I really wish they would listen to me on this. What's even worse is we've raised now an entire generation where parents have been giving their kids not just flip phones, but smartphones since they were six years old, and now they're wondering why their teenager is completely jacked up. That's one of the reasons why. And I happen to um, encourage and laud the parents who are much more disciplined, even though it is a daily, constant battle with their 14-year-old who's saying, all my other friends have Instagram and Snapchat and a, cell, you know, a, a smartphone and all that stuff, who are, who are saying, okay, you're going to have a phone, but there's going to be limited usage on it, and, and I'm going to watch the content. Generally speaking, those are the kids who are growing up much more well-adjusted, who are not depressed, who are not anxious, and who are not uh, literally uh, entertaining suicidal thoughts. This, this, is, this, is, this is way bigger than the coronavirus pandemic. Believe me, this is an epidemic, and we haven't even begun to experience the consequences of this, the digital communication revolution. This is, in the last 2,000 years, we've been through three epical uh, revolutions in how the brain is wired. The first was when writing actually started happening. The second was with movable type, the Gutenberg Press. And we're in the middle of the third now, digital communication and social media. Our brains are literally being rewired and they are not being rewired in good ways. We have, 
We have people, we have teenagers and we have people in their 20s and yes, people older who are literally chemically addicted to their screens in ways that the addiction is stronger even than cocaine and in some cases meth. And people laugh at me when I say that, but I'm saying that to them as they're posting something on their phone and saying to me, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They can't stop looking at their phone for even five seconds. But I'm not addicted to my phone, that's what they say. It's, it's out of control. So, so this, is, this is one of the things that's happening right now. And I would argue even that the pandemic has become a distraction from that reality. So you and I shared an article within the last 24 mm -hmm. hours by uh, somebody on the Gospel Coalition website entitled, Are Churches Losing the Battle to Form Christians? <laughs> and he was, the author was picking up your point that there's so much digital stuff out there that is competing with a Christian message and so many different sources and that that problem has become even more acute during the pandemic he's, he's when, right. when we are just sort of one voice. And he writes, the digital age, and more broadly, our secular age has greatly expanded the horizon of ideas shaping Christians. The church is increasingly just one voice among many speaking into a Christian's life. Yeah. A church's worship habits may occupy two hours of a Christian's week, but podcasts, or radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming, and entertainment account for upwards of 90 hours a week. Yeah. And then he goes on to talk about how the pandemic has made that worse. And then he gives three pieces of advice, because I, I asked you, do you think we're losing the battle? And you, before you give your response, th think of what his advice was. His advice was- Your questions are too long, man. Oh, I know. <laughs> but this is fascinating. I, Anybody, I, you guys can go on home, man. We're gonna finish this. But the one thing he said is that the media habits should be a discipleship focus. So he seems to be saying that the church has an obligation to at least encourage discipleship about media focus, which yeah. I think is what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, so the first thing I would say is that we are, I feel like we're just voices in the wilderness. I, I do these seminars all the time on, look, I, here, here you go. R right out of the gate, I can tell you there are some people listening to this right now going, he's just an old fart who doesn't care, he doesn't understand the new technology and he just wants things to go back to the way they were in the 50s. I was only alive for nine months in the 50s, I don't remember them. I don't remember the 60s much, well I do actually, I wasn't on drugs, but um, like everybody else, but that's not it at all. I understand the technology is here to stay. What I'm saying is that, that people don't seem to understand that with great progress there is always consequences to the great progress and if you're not willing to look at those genuine consequences and start trying to mitigate them, you will be devoured alive by them. The problem is, is that we're voices in, the wilderness. I do these seminars and some parents are interested in hearing it because they're going, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought that was right. I thought that was true. Now I'm going to tell my 13 year old that, you know, she can't be on the phone at two o'clock in the morning texting her friends anymore while she's supposed to be sleeping. I'm actually going to tell her that this time, you know, and, and it, unless you take the phone away, it's not going to do any good. Okay. But, um, generally people aren't listening to this. They don't want to hear it. It's a, it's a message where on, on, on October 14th, on Wednesday night, I'm gonna do a 70-minute seminar on the notion of disillusion, the disillusion of meaning. And I'll bet you we are gonna have a throng of two or three people here in the audience and like one person watching on YouTube, and that'll be Caleb because he has to. Because nobody's gonna care. 
And I'm telling you, it might be the most important lecture other than the gospel that I could possibly give because everybody's just going to be like, eh, whatever. You have no idea how serious this is. This is a very serious issue. Now, let me take issue with this idea of losing the battle for discipleship. So can you explain to me when the church won the battle for discipleship? When was it that the church won the battle for discipleship? On the cross. And since then? Still won. Okay, what I'm saying, though, is this idea, first of all, that we're, the church is always going to lose the battle for discipleship because the world is too distracting. It doesn't mean that we don't keep trying and that we don't keep doing it, and we don't have some victories along the way, but overall, we're going to lose the battle. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. We're, we're always going to lose the battle. Second of all, I'm so tired of people putting in context of winning and losing a battle, Okay. The battle has been won. The war has been won. We're not called to win a battle. We're not called to win a culture. We are called to proclaim the gospel and to serve people and love people. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to battle people. Um, we, we can debate and we can have uh, friendly arguments about things. Again, uh, things that are more and more a thing of the past because people don't want to do that. But Putting it into those tombs is problematic for me. And also, like I said, I, I don't, maybe during the first and second century when the church was really persecuted, they would win battles. But what, would they, what were they doing when they were persecuted? Like really persecuted. Not people making mean faces to them and making a mean post on Twitter about them. I mean, like they were burned at the stake. What was the church doing? They were loving and serving their neighbor and they were proclaiming the gospel. That's what they were doing. Want to talk about another subject? Sure. So anything to calm me down. Okay. <laughs> so, John MacArthur, how's that? Oh, that'll calm me down. Okay. So he recently authored a, a fairly long piece along with the elders yeah. of Grace Community Church. Uh, in, in, in California. In California, uh, claiming, among other things, that Christians are biblically duty-bound to ignore government orders regarding uh, assembly at churches and social distancing and the like. Uh, Duty-bound to ignore government orders. In fact, he, he actually wrote, compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands, and pastors who comply with government orders regarding that violate the God-ordained spheres of authority. Mm -hmm. And as you know, that, that, uh, that has caused quite a... Uh, uh, an uproar in the at least the evangelical community with people saying good for you courageous view others saying uh, that's a rather rigid stance that ignores the liberty that Christians yeah. have and then it brings the whole issue of uh, to what obedience do we owe to civil authority institutions that God in fact created yeah. uh, so where do you come down on all of that uh, we're in obedience to uh, state suggestions, guidelines, and orders yeah. on this issue. Are, are we in violation of God's clear commands? I don't think so. No, I think there's also clear commands that, that we are to obey the governing authorities. Um, but doesn't God command us to gather? He says, do not forsake the gathering. Um, so let's define what gathering means. We're, we're gathering um, in uh, protocoled, 
guideline restricted ways on Sunday mornings right now, and we're gathering virtually. I know that's not real church. Yes, and I would argue that myself, but under the conditions, under the circumstances, it's what we've got right now. But we are also gathering in person. Um, let, me, let me back up a little bit. First of all, you, you have Gavin Newsom and you have John MacArthur. Gavin Newsom is the... Gavin, Gavin Newsom is the governor of California who is just as rigid and, I don't know, out of control on the other end of the spectrum as you might say John MacArthur, or somebody might say John MacArthur is. So just my observation, my opinion, I feel like you have two guys, MacArthur and Newsom, playing chicken with each other. I think that's, at its core, if you strip everything else away, that's what it is. You have a couple of really stubborn, proud guys playing chicken with Did each other. Did we really want to tape this? I, that's what I think. Okay. I'm sure John MacArthur will get in his car, drive over here, and beat me up. I'm sure he will. Gavin Newsom won't. He's too busy trying to run California, but maybe I'll hurt his feelings a little bit. But it's, it, that, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like two guys playing chicken with each other. Um, I will also tell you that based on some of the things that Gavin Newsom has done, there's a part of me that says, I don't blame John MacArthur for reacting the way he has. It, it, it just it makes sense, you know. In a, in a way, they're both, they both have gone too far. Um, I think that you have to be balanced in your approach. Uh, I think that the virus is a real threat. We need to take it seriously. And I feel like in some respects, in some areas, the government is doing the very best they can to try to help the citizens and protect us. Um, especially in Arizona, I feel like we've had a measured response uh, Governor Ducey has pivoted when he's needed to pivot. He hasn't done everything right, according to a lot of people, but he's pivoted when he's needed to pivot, and he's changed his mind about things, and he's, he's corrected mistakes that he's made, and, and I, I feel like Mayor Gallegos has, has, has also done the best that she can do in the city council under the circumstances, and according to Romans 13, we should do our best to live within the constraints of what they are asking us to do, what they are telling us to do in their declarations. And we have found ways to be able to comply with the declarations and still provide somewhat of a context for gathering. We've been able to do that. So is that old aphorism that we hear occasionally still, still appropriate? Uh, we are command, we have to obey civil authority unless it commands us to do something God specifically Prohibits, prohibits, right, or prohibits us from doing something, something God, God specifically, specifically commands. And there's only three examples of that in all of the Bible. Sixty-six books of the Bible. There's only three examples of that, and that was with Moses and the midwives. That was with Daniel, uh, and that was with um, Peter and John Peter. in in the Book of Acts. Only three times. It's amazing how in whatever thousands of years, sixty-six books in the Bible. That only happens three times. But in our current cultural context, Christians seem to be able to find a, a way to defy the governing authorities on a daily basis. You know, I don't, I don't know that we're, I think we're overreacting in some cases. I, I think what we're doing is fine. Now, here you go. What we're, I think what we're doing is we're, we're doing the right approach. It's a slow roll. We're, we're 
we have protocols, we're, we're trying to be as safe as possible, we're mitigating the spread of the virus as much as we can while still having some semblance of a couple of gatherings every Sunday, which have been absolutely wonderful and life-giving to so many people who have needed to be back in community, real, here you go, my metaphor that always gets me in trouble, real flesh on flesh, um, community and worship, that's very, very important. But uh, we are getting emails from people saying, that we have absolutely no business opening the church for anything, including a meeting between two people, don't we realize we're gonna kill people with the virus? And we have people emailing us saying, I'm never gonna be a part of this church again because you haven't just opened completely up and the mask requirement is ridiculous. So no matter what you do in this context, you're gonna get people from both sides saying you're doing it wrong with their opinions. Well, I'm glad you haven't lost your enthusiasm and passion for the subject. Yeah, well, anyway. I, you know, so, so, so MacArthur, yeah, okay, but that's over there, we're doing our thing here. So, I think MacArthur should do what we're doing, that's what I think. So, one more question before I do a closing exercise, and a, a, maybe a point of application question. What, what can the congregation do? Um, Notes, or, again. Yeah, <laughs> how did I phrase that? What, what do you yeah, need, what, what does the church need most yeah from the congregation during this time. And I, you're like, don't you know offhand? I do, but I wanna make sure I say it the way I wrote it. Sometimes I write it better than I can say it. And you know what? There's also one passage of scripture I wouldn't mind reading at this time. You might be surprised where I, where I find it from. Okay, here you go. The first thing we need is your prayers, which I appreciate your prayers. Uh, I get emails and texts now occasionally from people, and all they do is they're saying, you know what, I'm praying for you today. Holy cow, that's so encouraging. Um, and Anne has been um, talking about reassembling a group of women who pray for the church and the staff and the elders and the deacons uh, once a month, and that would be wonderful. Even if they did it through Zoom or if they did it in person, it doesn't matter. Uh, second of all, this may be the biggest one, the hardest one, engagement. Uh, Tyler Thompson and I read the same um, study a few weeks ago that said that uh, in the mid-30s, like 35% of regular church-attending people since the pandemic started have not attended church, which makes sense. You know, there are some cities where, you know, you can't, you can't, you're not, you can't go to church yet, okay? I was just at camp in Iowa uh, at the end of July, and there were people there that were worshiping in community for the first time since March 15th. It was their first time worshiping in community. They were from Chicago, Minneapolis, um, uh, Milwaukee, places where they couldn't get in their church. So, but here's, here's the frightening part of that statistic. It's not just that they haven't been to church since the pandemic started, but they have not participated in or observed one single virtual event from their church. They haven't gone to a live stream, they haven't watched a pre-recorded uh, Sunday service, nothing. They've completely disengaged from the church. So prayers first. Second, we need your engagement. If you feel comfortable coming on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning, please come. Wear a face covering, but come. Please come if you feel comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable, we thoroughly and totally understand. But please watch the live stream or watch the recording later. 
one of the things that's a little bit discouraging to me is when somebody will call me up and say, hey, I need to have coffee with you. I got something I need to talk to you about. And we'll sit down for coffee and they start to go into something about some topic. And I'm like, well, did you, did you listen to the, did you, were you, did you watch the sermon or listen to the sermon from Sunday morning? No, I haven't been listening to anything in the church. Well, I addressed that on Sunday morning during the sermon. So now, if they would just engage, they would have a lot of questions answered and not have to then take time to, you, you, see, you, you see what I'm getting at, okay? We need your engagement. We need your engagement. So that's the second thing. The third thing is we need your witness. Uh, the mission in the ch of the church is not on hold. There are a lot of people who really think the mission of the church is on hold because of the pandemic and the civil unrest. No, the mission of the church is not on on hold. In fact, um, you know, there's been a lot of trouble the last day or two in Gilbert. I don't know if you've been following that. Uh, tremendous amount of trouble there. And um, Tyler Johnson and the elders and the staff at Redemption Gilbert have organized a prayer walk for tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock in downtown Gilbert. So you see, the mission of the church has not changed, okay? They're, they're out there praying for their community. Okay, we, we need to be more about things like that. And then fourth, faithful stewardship. We, we, we still need your stewardship. I mean, you know, that's a reality and a fact of life here. So that would be the four things I would say. So anything the, you would add to that as an elder? Uh, no. Okay. No. Uh, is there I any covered it all so well? Actually. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to talk about? No. <laughs> do we have time for a lightning round on yes, a lighter note? We got plenty, we got 10 minutes. Well, it won't take that long. Okay. I thought we'll it might be nice to just follow up a little bit more personally on uh, what Frank's all about, if you haven't already figured it out after listening to tonight. So I put together a little lightning round of uh, questions to which he can answer quickly. He has not seen these, so. Uh, so, so first question, and you know, lightning rounds are, you give short, succinct answers to these. <laughs> For a Christian, is there any redeeming value in watching either Seinfeld or The Office? Purple. Well, that, okay. is, that doesn't even make sense. I, uh, during, during the Seinfeld days and after, uh, it became pretty common to talk about how every day you have a Seinfeld moment. And that's true. Even today, I still have a Seinfeld moment virtually every day. But I've also found that I've had an Office moment. Um, you can find a ton of theology in both shows, but I will tell you that uh, Seinfeld never moved me to tears. The Office moved me to tears on three or four occasions. I mean, profoundly to weeping tears. Of laughter or pathos? Uh, of pathos. And the one I remember the most is when Jim and Pam, America's couple, um, it looked like they were gonna get a divorce and they, began to embrace in the parking lot of Dumder Mifflin and, and Jim really wanted to embrace her and he was holding her tight and she was standing there with her arms limp, not hugging back. And then she thought back to their wedding and the minister who officiated their wedding reading 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Going through that, she thought back to that and she began to hug Jim, and their marriage was resurrected. And I watched that episode for the first time with Darby, my youngest daughter, and both of us were just weeping. That 
that a show that a lot of people would say is thoroughly irreverent, produced by a place like Hollywood, thoroughly irreverent and anti-gospel, would allow that to be the reason for Jim and Pam to resurrect their marriage. They could have picked anything else, oh. and they picked 1 Corinthians 13. They picked the gospel. That was awesome. So if you could have a guest pastor come preach from outside of Arizona here, who would that be? Alistair Begg, no question. And where is he? He's at Parkway, Ohio? Parkway Community Church or Parkway Church in, uh, in, in, in or around Cleveland. Yeah. And I know, well, what about Tim Keller? He'd be great too, but man, I would love people to, most people know Tim Keller. Yeah. Not everybody knows Alistair Begg. Man, would he be awesome. Yeah, Ann loves Alistair Begg. Yeah, yeah. So if hockey was banned or prohibited, what sport would you become a passionate fan about? I guess I would try, because I'm in Arcadia, I would try very hard to like soccer. Because a lot of people in Arcadia like soccer. Um, but I am passionate and excited about another sport as a spec, well, two other sports as a spectator. One that doesn't get very much TV time, and that's volleyball. volleyball. But I prefer women's volleyball to men's volleyball. Well, it, explain your uh, enthusiasm for volleyball. Everybody may not know well, why. Jackie played volleyball through high school and part of college. She's been a volleyball coach most of her adult life while working at other jobs. She's won state, state championships at the high school level as a volleyball coach. She's coached her club teams to uh, not national titles, but she's taken them to nationals, all different age groups, anywhere from 12 to 18-year-olds. Both of our daughters played um, high school volleyball, won state championships, were on state championship teams in volleyball played college volleyball, albeit Division Three, but they played college volleyball and loved it, had a great time. Tremendous character forming through those experiences with volleyball. Um, and I learned to love the, the women's game of volleyball. The men's is just, it's way too much, uh, um, it's, I guess I would describe it this way, it's too abrupt. There is a, an athleticism and grace that's involved in the women's game, especially at the college level, that is unparalleled anywhere, and I would include maybe even hockey players, although I think they're the greatest athletes around, other than women college volleyball players. So volleyball, but the one that is on television quite a bit, if they'd ever start playing again, and I love is tennis. I love Wimbledon, I love the US Open, I love all of that stuff. We're a big tennis um, family. It would not be basketball, it would not be baseball, it would not be football, and I guess I would try to learn to like soccer. Some lightning round, huh? I don't know what to say, but I'm still, I got a couple more. If you were- And not golf. If you were convicted of a high crime and misdemeanor and deported and exiled from the United States and assuming the country would take you, where would you move? Uh, I would move to Victoria, Canada. To the Bouchard Gardens? Whatever. Okay. It's pretty up there. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Oh, man, I got like five. And I hate it when people answer okay. my how question. About a, how about a favorite verse? A life, do you have a life verse? Uh, he must increase and I must decrease. I love that from John chapter 3. I can't wait to get there uh, in our current series. But I, here you go. Philippians 
And, and by the way, just, I just had this conversation with um, Craig DeNoyer earlier today. Uh, the book of Philippians in the New Testament uh, may, have, may have no greater relevance than today. I don't know if people are realizing that, but Philippians is a great book for today. If you just read through it and start to study it, really good. But I've always loved Philippians. It's the book that I translated from the Greek to the English in seminary and got an A on it. Anyway, um, uh, so that. But man, Esther, um, Ruth, Genesis. I could just go on and on about Old Testament books. You could name 66. Yeah, I could name 66. The most influential book you're reading now or that you've read recently? Um, this is a little weird, and, and we'll take more explanation, which we probably don't have time for tonight. But um, I'll tell you about a book I finished uh, recently. It's um, Jeff Ginn's book uh, called The Road to Jonestown, which is the biography and story of Jim Jones, who eventually built Jonestown in Guyana mm -hmm. and was sort of oversaw not only the suicide, but also murder of 906 people in Guyana. Um, people say they were all suicide. No, they weren't. You know, read the detailed analysis. About half of those 900 were actually had to be murdered. Um, about half of them took the poison, and about half of them had to be murdered. They were trying to figure out how to get out of it. Isn't that where the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, came from? It is, but there wasn't actually Kool-Aid there. The, the yeah. real Kool-Aid was in the 90s in San Diego with people with the purple oh. Nikes. That was where they actually drank Kool-Aid. Okay. But, but the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid, did come from Jonestown. So that was, in, the reason that was influential is because he was a Christian minister. And it's amazing how easy it is for false teachers to be able to command people in, in, in ways that are thoroughly unhealthy and unhelpful and, and use the gospel as a pretense for trying to better people's lives. He was, he was, there was something really wrong with him. But the book I just finished that was just fascinating, again, not a theological book. Well, it is. I could argue it's a theological book, but um, a friend of mine at camp, I ran into this guy at camp. We had a nice time spending some time together. He said, you got to read this book. Uh, it's called American Kingpin, and it's about... Um, uh, uh, Ross Ulbricht, that was his name. I was trying to get his name earlier. Ross Ulbricht, the guy who um, created and started the Silk Road website on the dark web. Absolutely fascinating, could not put it down, and it's uh, theological in the sense of um, helping you to understand the total rule of depravity over the human mind and heart. Yeah. Last question. What's really? The that's, there's only one more? I'm yeah. starting to have fun now. Yeah, okay. And I'm relaxing now. What's the uh, part of pastoring you enjoy most? Uh, there's two. I, I really enjoy, um, you know, the, the preaching and the teaching. I believe that God has gifted me for that. And I really enjoy the shepherding part, um, the, the premarital stuff, the officiating weddings, the doing funerals. Although with our congregation, we don't, honestly, we don't, we don't do very many funerals. Now, we don't. Um, the the one-on-one -on -one stuff, the, the little triads and quads that I've been trying to put together recently, just because of the pandemic, you can't meet with, it's, 
hard to meet with 30 people, but so I've been trying to meet with three and four people. Uh, that stuff. I was told once uh, earlier in my ministry career uh, by a uh, somebody who is a uh, he has a master's in counseling, but he's also a master's in leadership, and he was analyzing me, and he sat me down one day and he said, Frank, you need to understand the way you're wired and the way you're gifted, you're never going to lead a mega church because you enjoy being in the weeds too much. Hmm. In other words, he said, you enjoy being with people too much. And, and uh, that, will, that will create stress and anxiety for you because it's also, it can also be a black hole that, that there's always somebody else to meet with. But he said, you enjoy it too much. You could never actually manage a church of 5,000 people. No matter how well you could preach and teach, you could never manage something that big. Yeah. And I think he's right. And I think that's why I, one of the reasons why I love the redemption model and in general and Arcadia in particular because we're never gonna, Arcadia is never going to be a mega church, you know. So not if we do more like these. Not if we do more. Frankly, speakings will never be a mega church, and we'll never be a. Me- we're never going to be a mega church on three and a half acres. But I think God has put put us in place for that reason. It's because we shouldn't be a mega church. Yeah, that's so. a good ending. Do you have anything you want to close before I pray for us? No, I I would say I. I I get passionate about this stuff and in a way that I can't really on Sunday ordinarily. And so I enjoy that from that respect, from that aspect, but I hope that my passion uh, didn't overrule the, hopefully the insight and helpfulness that some of this has been. That's what I'm hoping. It was great. That that it didn't get in the way, you know? So can I close this in prayer? Yes, please do. Uh, Heavenly Father, Thank you. Thank you so much for sending Frank to be our shepherd and to shepherd our church and for giving him such a pastor's heart and such a passion for, for you and, and for your people. Uh, we pray for Frank. We pray for spiritual protection from, from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. We, we pray for doors to, to be opened, to spread the gospel. Pray that Frank will continue to have boldness and power to preach the gospel faithfully and a spirit of, of wisdom and understanding to continue ministering and shepherding our congregation. Uh, we pray that you will continually renew and refresh him with energy and courage and strength and wisdom and power. And we also pray that, that you will give him rest and recovery, uh, both for himself and for Jackie and for the family. They will be in, kept in good health. They, you will keep them safe and calm their fears, if any, and that you'll bring them closer together and, and closer to you. Thank you for this evening. We feel your presence. We love you, and, and we thank you for saving us and extending your grace and mercy to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for coming out tonight. Good to see you.